I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. <clears throat> welcome, 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 welcome back. Welcome Thank you. I should probably do that again because that was atrocious. <laughs> Welcome back to TF3. Lovely to have you guys. And tonight we're talking about Champions League with just one other guy. Chris Hennage from Chris Hennage fame. <laughs> Thank you, Lawrence. It's a pleasure to be on the airwaves with you. I, I wish there were airwaves. I really actually would. That would make it more pleasurable. Um, plenty of people watching and listening over the airwaves tonight though to the massive games in the Champions League and obviously the FA Cup as well in England let's get down to the Champions League first though we've got four games to review and four teams going through we're going to start in the only place that everyone seems to be focusing on right now and that's Atletico Madrid's uh, brilliant win Kristen um, they, you know I mean uh, yeah, uh, some people called it Probably some Atletico fans called it. Most people said the favourites would go through. I think it was Joel Solomon that was saying on uh, Twitter tonight, he was basically saying, you know, it's very clear that Barcelona are the better side, but anything sub 10 games or even just two games like we've had can prove that tactics can overcome that. Well, that's the interesting debate, I think, is is the fact that Joel speaks with such certainty that Barcelona are the better team. I guess it's how you define that metric of, of yeah. being a better team because... In many ways, you can't really quantify it. You could argue the best team in the world is the most versatile in the way that it approaches games and handles different positions. If, if it's even possible to actually judge who is the best in that sense. So, you know, you can, you can literally have... I mean, does it even, my question would be, does it even really matter uh, who's the best team? It's, you know, it's, if anything, it just seems a bit more like a distraction because, mm. you know, the, tournament, the whole tournament's purpose is to kind of grade that in a way it doesn't really matter what our opinion is outside what matters is why right and, and why they got to that area and i guess i'm interrupting you just before you're about to go on to that bit with simeone and his gang exactly i think you, you put it brilliantly there, there yourself certainly you could say that barcelona aesthetically are one of the best teams in the world if not the best because of the fluency that they operate with yeah. i think though we also saw their achilles heel in the sense that they're so drilled in, in this possession style and the way that they play, and it has brought them such success and such, such results, that when it doesn't work against a partic- particular opponent, and I will give them this, it is a rare occasion, mm-hmm. they don't want to divert from it. Because why would you divert from something that you've been so sure of and so certain of for so many years and that has been such a cornerstone? But to be fair, it's also worked for them in the past. And people were lauding this side as possibly even an improvement on the side that everyone said had reached the zenith of whatever football could be at that point. And mm. I mean, that, that is part of it, isn't it, Chris? That actually no team is infallible. There's, you know, there, there's no set of tactics that you can employ, which, you know, over a hundred games are going to win a hundred of them. Exactly. And I think as well, we do sometimes get mired in the idea of what did X do wrong? Yeah. When actually the bigger question is what did Y do right? So to what, make what it did, so that X couldn't advance. What did Y Simeone do right uh, <laughs> so that X, uh, Luis Enrique, didn't advance? I think he, he narrowed the space in key areas. It's, it's funny. Um, I was just playing Six Aside this evening. Um, and there's oh, a chap. No, he's done it already. <laughs> there's a chap who's a little bit older and he's, he's also a little bit slower. And I've noticed... about, I hate it when you talk about yourself in the third person. <laughs> I wish. I wish I'm one of the youngest. I'm only 26. Mm-hmm. Um, and. The, I noticed when you play with him on his team, he's constantly talking to you about shape mm-hmm. and essentially sitting a little bit deep <laughs> and a little bit compact. You're and, looking a bit bigger this week. <laughs> oh, Mike. Irony, <laughs> irony. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
But he's so focused on that. And it's those little things of, again, there are certainly schools of thought that would say engage Barcelona, you know, in defence. That's fine. But actually, that's the worst thing you can do because it opens up the spaces that they thrive in. If you invite them on, as scary a prospect as that might be, mm-hmm. you can actually limit the space they can operate in. And as brilliant as the likes of Messi and Neymar and Suarez are in tight areas, I don't think they can escape three players regularly. And it, it's that idea of, in the same way that you create triangles with possession, actually you should be trying to almost create triangles with defence as well. And the way that you shut the ball down because it limits the avenues that they can go into. And I think you know by, by the end of the game, you were seeing Barcelona throw balls aimlessly into the penalty box in the hope that PK could flick something on and it could bounce a certain way. And, and when you're relying on, on that sort of, you know, look, look almost that, that opportunity, good fortune, I think that suggests you're, you're in a pretty desperate situation. Also looking at the way that the players reacted. I mean, that was part of it, wasn't it? Is, you know, Neymar's kick or, um, you know, even the, you could even argue that the handball was sort of a, an under pressure decision because, you know what? I mean, you almost want. Uh, did, I'm going to ask: Did Iniesta make the right decision in handballing it? I don't know what. Again, it's that. It's diff- not the thing. It's not a certain goal by that point, is it? Yeah, it's mired in hindsight. It's the idea yeah. of again, if if you reach for it, maybe he thinks I can get my chest on it. Maybe maybe that's his thought process rather than I'm definitely going to handball this to to stop yeah. the penalty. Yeah. You could also argue that again, the penalty is not a guaranteed goal. Yep. And we saw, you know, as, as Antoine Griezmann took it, the goalkeeper was exceptionally close to getting it. Yes. So, again, it's that same idea of, <clears throat> you know, you're, you're essentially lining up the probabilities. That's, that's what you're doing. You're making a, a snap mental decision on what you think is the most likely outcome based on the action that you take. And very often in the past, Barcelona have made those correct decisions. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, what's interesting is sort of the mental side of, what Simeone was doing tonight, you know, sort of uh, willing the fans on to will the players on. And I sort of get to the point, Chris, where we think, you know, how far can he take this Atletico side? Well, you would argue that the furthest he can take it at this point, having won the Liga already, is to the Champions League final and winning it. That's the peak for them, I think, under his tenure. The, the curious thing, I think, for them, and, and we talk about the strengths and the possible downfalls of these teams moving into the, the semifinals, is that if you notice tonight against Barcelona, there were so many tackles that Atletico made yeah. that were perfectly timed. Yeah. And in one way, you credit that and say it's wonderful. You also say if you're a millisecond out with that, it's a foul in a key area and it's potentially a penalty. It's potentially a free kick. And in the same way that Barcelona run that very narrow line of throwing men forward when chasing a game and only keeping, you know, one or two back and, and potentially allowing a counterattack, Atletico run that same risk of they put themselves in very dangerous positions defensively mm. and back themselves to win the one-on-one, which can be a risky strategy. And that's part of it, isn't it? Is that actually, you know, the reason that people love Barcelona is because of the long-term strategy that they've employed and you know the, the fact that uh, you know, basically from top to bottom they they seem to have built a club which looks sustainable and part of the criticism of Simeone is that because of the sheer amount of energy and mental strength that it takes to play in one of his teams that doesn't become sustainable over you know a very long time it's sort of it's mm. almost a short-termist approach to win things but he, it almost has to go in cycles it ebbs and flows because it's like well the players are exhausted now they can't go and do that again <laughs> Yeah, it is. I mean, you you look at someone like Antonio Conte, who, again, operated with a similar sort of headstrong Mm -hmm. 100 mile per hour approach. And he didn't advance very far with with Juventus in the Champions League. In fact, I remember speaking to to Adam Digby, who's who's kind of one of my top guys for for Serie A, and him saying that actually he thinks one of the reasons that Juventus made the, the Champions League final the year after Conte left was that Max Allegri can manage those games a little bit better, knows when you can coast along the road a little bit and when you actually have to, to use the accelerator. It's a very good point, actually. Perspective is uh, a real part of it, isn't it? And that's, that's definitely something that Leicester City have brought to the Premier League. Um, mm. And yeah, I know, I know that you've in the past compared sort of the way that Leicester play with the, West, the way that Atletico play, not in such a direct way because Dave was, you know, mortally offended that that may have happened. But, uh, you know, there, there are sort of parallels, if you like, and it, it almost sets Simeone up perfectly, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. 
I, th- I think, look, I don't think it's massively different to saying the jet are a bit like ACDC. It's, you're not saying they're direct uh, embodiments of each other. It's a I genre. Think, exactly. I, th- I think what you're saying is, is that for this Atletico side, again, it's organized, it's compact, it's shutting down, as we touched on, the space in key areas. Mm-hmm. Those are all principles that I think Claudio Ranieri has brought to Leicester. And the fact that, again, he accepts that relative to his rivals, I don't think he expected this by any stretch, relative to the, the teams that they were supposed to be around, he maybe knew his players weren't as good in theory. So you have to limit their shortcomings and maximise their benefits. The benefits they had were exceptional pace in Jamie Vardy, similar pace in Riyad Mahrez, and a decent ball player in Danny Drinkwater, someone who could find space with the ball on a consistent basis. You then further kind of strip that away by making sure that the team as a whole operates. We look at Greece 2004. That's often the the example that's held up and said, look what a team can do. Mm. Even when it's individuals, perhaps on paper, perhaps at club level, aren't excelling wonderfully. A team can win a tournament. And I think that's what we saw tonight with, with Atletico and Barcelona. Uh, we asked you for feedback on Twitter and we're getting that right now. Uh, a lot of people saying things like, uh, is Felipe Luiz the best left back in the world, Chris? I think that's a bold claim. It's funny, we, there was a similar debate about Zlatan last night. And, sure, yeah. And I kind of came away thinking, I, I don't rate players like a CD rack. I don't put one, two, three. I, th- I think that can be a little bit myopic. I think a CD, by the way, is a comeback disc. Um, Chris, <laughs> yeah, Chris. You can't stack MP3s, can yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you could just in a playlist, yeah. I don't know where to take that, to be yeah, fair. No, no, great point. Um, I, guess, I guess what we're going with that is, uh, you know, ranking players, essentially. Um, and the, the point is less about him being ranked and more about how good he was. Um, and almost, I, do you ever look at Felipe Luiz and think, you don't look like a conventionally good left back or the way that I imagine a left back looks? He looks like a winger turned full back. One of those kind of, will score you three goals, get you four assists in the season, but will also have a few kind of clangs. I, I think, again, you know, it's funny, the the night prior to that, we have Kevin De Bruyne, tonight we have Felipe Luiz. There's just an air of Mourinho being dragged through the, the ringer with, with hindsight, I think, and, and the idea of him letting go players that, that shouldn't really have been let go from Chelsea. I'm not sure if I necessarily subscribe to that idea wholeheartedly, but I think there's perhaps cases to be, to be heard on both men. Uh a lot of people still uh, coming in. Um, someone saying Simeone's style is a disgrace, not the super defensive, then count, not, the, yeah, not the super defensive, but then counter, but the kick the living hell out of the other team style. Do you at all see that, Chris? I mean, there were a few arms out tonight. I think the term is a tactical foul, and it was arguably, in my opinion, typified by Diego Godin quite late on when he, he called back Sergio Roberto. He, he went on a bit of a rampage mm-hmm. forward, lost the ball. And to be fair, even Steve McManaman kind of called it. He said he's going to foul him here. Yeah. And he did, quite literally, two arms on the shoulders, drag him back and took a yellow card for it. Again, I, I think that's one of those situations that you interpret as, it, is, it, is it chronically dirty or is it... Actually, a, a, it. Yeah. a part of the game that, again, maybe teams don't look at enough in, in terms of game management and situation management as well. You know, you, the idea of taking the yellow card. Yes, um, that's, a very, that's a very non-British way to look at it, uh, but it, it works well. Um, opinions on implementing the offside line technology. We have goal line technology. Should, there, uh, should we move beyond that? Too many disallowed goals. That's from Piotr Gala. Chris, and there's a, a number of rules and questioning uh, of the officials and the way that the games are set up. Uh, people questioning, you know, between PSG and Man City. I thought they were all correct offside calls, actually. Um, but, you know, questioning whether we want more certainty. First of all, feelings mm-hmm. about that? It, it feels like blaming the fire of London on the baker that started it. Yeah, I, I think... He was a wanker. Um, I think it, it's it's unfair to lump it at the door of referees in the way that we do when a decision isn't given correctly. Because again, I, I think that's unfair of the fact that they don't have the best possible technology at their disposal. Yeah. They're also asked to judge a situation with a, a myriad of other factors in there, kind of players flying about, one look at it, maybe not from the best angle. It's an insanely difficult job. And I again, I will bang this drum for as long as humanly possible. Keep banging. I think until we give referees the best 
possible technological advantages. We really can't complain for the most part. And undeniably, there will be decisions that are obvious that the, the naked eye can see are clear and get wrong. Mm. That is an unfortunate human error. The fact that so much money is invested in this game period and, and so much rides on it, and we haven't sought to implement better technology or, or the maximum amount of technology available, still really confuses me because you would think, without wishing to sound too moralistic, you want the right team to advance. You, you don't want so many decisions to be defined on, well, did someone see that correctly or not? Yeah, very good point. Uh, uh, although Zatam may just say that the, the right team went out uh, on Tuesday night between Barcelona and PSG. Chris, Man City and PSG. Uh, sorry, Man, Man City and PSG. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Um, would... Would, would you sort of subscribe again to what I was saying about Joel earlier, that actually it, it's not so much about them being better. It's actually that Man City... Actually, Man City didn't play this one right because it, it was two really poor games technically, wasn't it? <laughs> well, the thing is, if you can look at Atletico and say it was deep, narrow, and that was the plan, I don't see that same forethought with Manchester City. I actually see a team that, for large portions, was bossed in possession. Mm-hmm. A team that, again... It felt like they were playing a weird hybrid of four two three one four four two, and the bizarre thing is Manuel Pellegrini has seen the latter formation really tank in the Champions League before on a very public level, and seems to still persist with it. Now, again, the De Bruyne goal is a brilliant goal. I think it un- underlines his quality more than anything. It doesn't distract from the fact that again, and we touched on this on TFR live that if you give that possession to Unfortunately, they're no longer in the tournament. But let's say a, a Bayern Munich or Barcelona, you're going to struggle. You're going to likely end up losing the game. And and the difference between that and and Tuesday night was PSG just didn't use the ball well enough. And and it was reflected in the fact that Lequipe gave some some pretty harsh ratings across the board for the, the PSG team. It is interesting, isn't it, Chris? That actually, you know, you can sort of buy the technical side of things, but it's it is also about the decisions made and. Uh, you know that that's sort of been a very interesting side to the games. Uh, you know, people making the right decisions have uh, have decided this. Exactly. I mean, what I would say is that for PSG, I fully understood why Laurent Blanc made the tactical decision he did. Yes. And I think actually it it would be a little bit unfair to put the blame on him. Yeah. Because I thought if you looked at that formation, essentially Di Maria was seen as the number ten, the career in a central role, which for my money, was why he succeeded so well in his final season at Real Madrid. He was given a central position to work in. The fact that he didn't shine will likely further cement the idea that he's not very good, or not elite level, I should say, in, in his detractors. Again, it, it's it's pushing the cement onto a lot of conventions, such as Ibrahimovic doesn't turn up in big games, Di Maria is, is far too uh, hit and miss, and that in general PSG enjoy a dominance in Ligue 1 that doesn't translate to Europe because they're just not that good a team, even though they spent exorbitant amounts of money. Chris, uh, in, interesting other rules. Obviously, the home and the away leg, and then just after that, the idea that there should and shouldn't be away goals. Which way are you subscribing? I think my, my gut reaction was keep away goals because yeah. I think it gives a good impetus to, to teams like Atletico, for example, I, th- I think it gives them a reason to attack. Mm-hmm. I think when you remove away goals, you do almost take away the benefit f- for those underdogs. Um, certainly, we've seen way, it benefit yeah. the elite at times. I-, I think we've definitely seen it benefit those who were expected to win. I also think that it's a, a, a nice staple of European football. I can I can see the case f- against it, of course. Um, but for me personally, I, th- I think it has a validity in, in today's game. And obviously, a lot of sides, in fact, three of the sides going through that played at home second in this. Uh, and people, where, where I'm really going with this is people are beginning to question not only the structure of the Champions League, but also just questioning UEFA's overall dominance, breaking away from that. A lot of clubs sort of playing into that. Uh, do you think that it's time to switch up the format of the Champions League? No, I, I don't. I, I, I like it as it is. Um... I, I personally haven't read in great depth what the proposed changes would be. It's it's something people just seem to say uh, just change it. 
Um, I, th- I think that's the difficulty again. It's it's saying just change it without actually explaining what you would change it to. Because yeah. again, it's we obviously better if we change it. What would you want? <clears throat> I don't know. Pull numbers out of a hat. Yeah. Well, that's actually let's that, do I mean, it. Be pretty compelling for essentially that's bingo, isn't it? Funhouse. That's it's Champions League Funhouse <laughs> with Pat Sharp. Um, oh, Iniesta in a what a go kart. I'm on some amazing references for our young audience tonight, yeah. by the way. Go look at that. Dad was a CD and what was Funhouse? Yeah. Um, who have you been talking to? But I, I think, again, you know, we had the two group stages when, when I was a, a younger chap that you had to try and advance through. We, we reformed it again. I think it's, it, there comes a point where it's nice to maintain a little bit of history to things and, and the idea that you can always refine, you can always evolve. I'm not necessarily sure that... There are reasons that, you know, certain things stay the same, and, and this is one of them, I think. I do think you sort of go down the route of, you know, uh, people almost want change for change's sake. They want conversation for conversation's sake, and subclubs, some clubs want money for money's sake. Um, and, th- you know, we can hide it in this is boring or whatever. It absolutely isn't because we've enjoyed all the matches. Um, but, you know, there's, I guess there are dark forces at work in UEFA at the moment. Um, and for once, it wasn't UEFA loner is what some people are saying. Um Obviously, Chris Benfica have gone out. We're going to hear more from Dave on that on the weekend. Bayern Munich go through. Pep marches on. The probability of him meeting uh, Man City halves yet again. Um, and then who are the other? Who's the other match we're forgetting? Oh yeah, Real Madrid. Those guys went through. Uh, Chris Diano with Ronaldo with a hat trick. Yeah, and, and credit to him delivered delivered on the big moment, and I'm sure to commence pride in doing so. It's unfortunate. I, I was a big fan of Wolfsburg. I liked what they brought to the competition. I thought there was um, a beauty in their story. Mm-hmm. I, again, it's the difficulty of when you lose, I believe it was Draxler quite early on. Yep. I, I, I'm loath to say they're a talismanic team. I do think he has a strong influence over them, though. And to lose someone like that and realistically just not have a huge wealth of talent in in behind them, I think it was Cruiser who came on um, for Draxler. It's it's that drop off. It's an unfortunate truth that again, not every team in the Champions League is, is blessed with an A team that would get into every single team in in Europe below them. Very good point. Uh, Fruha says, uh, "Fuck the Champions League. I believe in Poch, and we will catch Leicester. Come on, you Spurs!" That one takes it down a whole other angle. Let's talk about yet another competition which most people say should remain traditional. Uh, it's, it's the FA Cup. And the best tweet we received tonight, Kristen, was Matthew Hayden saying, tonight, Antonio Valencia and Antonio Valencia played. Ever happened before regarding names? That's a good question. I, d- I mean, uh, who, I don't know how else you could orientate that. There's got to be someone who's sort of... Uh, oh, there's, maybe it's Michael Thomas? Oh, no, maybe there was a Michael Thomas who did it. Maybe it, you could you also go for Luis Suarez? Surely that's happened before. Suarez must have placed uh, must have played a Luis and a Suarez at some point. There's enough Suarez's in the game now. Possibly the only Suarez I can think of. I'm not too sure how he fits into the equation. But again, if if he wants to go and uh, potentially look it up, I'm more than happy to read the results yeah. out. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, it's it's just an interesting point. Uh, try, I'm trying to think of other people who that might happen for Ian St. John. Uh, although I doubt there's another player with Ian St. Um, or maybe Alan St. Smith jumped out for me, but I don't know why. Alan Smith. Do you think there's someone with the first name Smith? There probably is, right? And Smith, and then Alan, Joe Allen. Can we do that? It's not the exact spelling, but it sort of works. Um, Gary Neville. I mean, Gary Neville's not a terrible one. He probably did play against. Uh, Neville. Mm. I mean, he's definitely played his brother Phil, hasn't he? Yeah, it's it's the Gary that's it, it's seeming like it's the first name that's the difficulty. Yes, uh, if a manager out there could make more names like this fit, that would be just great because that's actually why we watch football. Uh, but Kristen, speaking of Gary's old team, Manchester United, they went through tonight away from home in the replay against West Ham. How does Louis, <laughs> Louis Van Gaal keep doing it? I wouldn't say he keeps doing it. I mean, he got hammered 3 0 at the weekend, so he's, he's obviously he not do it? keep doing it. Again, I, th- I think Manchester United are just devolving into a team that are hard to predict. They're, they're chronically uh, inconsistent. That's, that's the issue with them. Yeah. In the sense that just as you expect them to topple even further off the back of that 
quite humiliating defeat to Tottenham. They go and pull out a victory against a very informed side that, again, had a lot to play for this this West Ham side. It wasn't just the idea of, of them wanting to advance in the cup. You know, there was the fact that that was going to be the the last. If if I'm if I've got the the, sto- the tournament stages correct, that would have been the last game at Upton Park in the FA Cup, regardless. Correct. So and to that's leave on why a win, everyone is posting about it. Mm, so to leave on a win would have been a a beautiful kind of legacy to leave. So right. again, they had more than enough motivation, but for whatever reason, they they couldn't seem to put it together. From what from what I heard, at least, unfortunately, I wasn't able to see it. That Marcus Rashford scored a, a wonderful goal, though. Good for him, huh? Eh? Mm. Kid, kid's doing good. He is. I, th- I think a few of them are. You know, uh, Fosimensa, someone that Dave really eulogises about quite heavily. I've been very impressed with him. I don't think it was a co- complete coincidence that they considered the three goals after he departed. Um, on Sunday against Tottenham. That's maybe the benefit you're looking at, is that amid all the chaos, amid all of the dire football, you've actually been able to see some youngsters progress and show that they can stake a claim because it didn't seem as if there was many young talents really coming through during the, the, the brief David Moyes era. Although what you'd argue is that David Moyes planted the seeds... Um, and then, no, I'm joking. Sorry, that was too far. Um, yes, good point, Kristen. David Moyes, sure. Uh, obviously, that, that makes Manchester United the favourites for the FA Cup? I don't see why not. Again, if, it, if it's a tournament that, it, that you could argue decided on the day of sorts, why not, why not say Manchester United can do it? Again, it, it gives them a really good opportunity to give a little bit of a silver lining to their season because they're struggling for it at the minute, I think. You, you almost don't want that, though, for Manchester United because you want them to see how well where things are at. Possibly. I, th- I think it depends how you interpret it. If, if you use it to ignore the situation and plaster over things, then it has a bad effect. If you look at it from the perspective of, OK, we were able to achieve something, we now know where the majority of the problems are, that we're not performing as a team, that we don't really have an identity, that the players we've bought aren't conducive to whatever style we're attempting at the current then I think you can take a positive from it. It's Again, it's it's all about perspective and, and whether you're willing to be honest with yourself or use it as a, a giant band-aid. Yeah, that's your point. Uh, let's just talk a little bit about Thursday night. Uh, Liverpool go back to Anfield 1-1 with uh, Borussia Dortmund's one of the clubs who was uh, touted around as pretty much the favourite for the competition because of the way they play their football. Uh, Chris, Liverpool won 4-1 on the weekend and Tunchal over in uh, Bundesliga. What, what was his result, actually? That's a good question. Um, I've now got to find a way of finding Bundesliga. Let me find there. Bayern, Dortmund. Well, they played Schalke. They, it was they the... played, sorry, yeah, they played Schalke and it was 2 all. Um, mm. uh, yeah. Christian Pulisic, uh, the American. Who, funnily enough, has been linked to Liverpool. Um, go ahead, go ahead, was, Chris. You know about Americans. Well, I was watching a, a prominent uh, Liverpool fan channel. Um, There's only one, isn't there? There is. Um, Liverpool, Liverpool, Liverpool. Yeah. Um, Dead Men TV. <laughs> and they were talking about the potential deal. And essentially, he's a 17-year-old Croat American who has recently con- committed himself to the United States after playing... In uh, I believe it was a Concacaf qualifier against Guatemala. Um, good man. That again will will serve them good in the future because he does look exceptionally talented. There was a particular turn he did in the first half that was absolutely brilliant to watch. I think I'm I believe I tweeted out actually. So if you have an inclination to go through my timeline, you'll find it um, along with highlights of his performance in general. Again, it it was a little bit of a a backup side for for Tuchel. I think he did prioritise. The, the Europa League. In fact, I believe he actually stated publicly that he was prioritising the Europa League tie over be, this derby with Schalke. Could, will he be punished for that? I, I mean, I suppose... I don't know if that's a uh, UEFA thing or if that's an FA thing. It's... Um, well, uh, Wolves were the team that were famously punished for naming 11 different players at, at Old Trafford relative to the last game. It, it feels a little bit insulting uh, to the players that played at Old Trafford, though, doesn't it? Sort of as professionals. I imagine so. I, I, can't, I can't expect they were getting in the team consistently prior to that so they, they likely knew their status anyway I think players yeah but you said you I, well maybe that's an English way of looking at it or maybe, maybe it's just sort of saying well you know everyone has that potential to be that good you know what if they'd have won that would you then have punished him you know well that's the <clears throat> that's the curious thing is that 
uh, Tuchel actually said afterwards that Pulisic is now considered a fully-fledged member of the first team. Yeah. So you, you start to walk that very fine line of actually, you have a squad at your disposal. You can choose to use them however you want. And I believe Mick McCarthy made this very point when he was punished, mm. was that I've got 25 players. I can use them however I see fit, game to game. It seems yeah. ridiculous to punish me for that. Yeah. The, the thing with, with this, I think, you only look, be it intelligent or idiotic, depending on the results. If they go to Anfield on Thursday and they win and they advance, then he's managed the situation expertly. Yes. Whereas... If, if they lose and they've essentially also drawn against a, a team that the seventh Schalke, so they're not by any means atrocious. They're also not excelling compared to, to Dortmund. They're, I think it's about 23 points behind them and also quite a fierce rival. The fact that you gave that up for a chance at the Europa League, I, I, I would like to think the Dortmund fans would appreciate that because, again, they, they were so close with that Champions League only a few years prior, the chance to add a Europa League to the cabinet is, is not a bad thing to, to aim for. Yeah, it would balance it out. Um, what do you think, Chris, uh, how do you think the, the game is going to play out? Because obviously it's not going to play out the same way as it did in the first leg. Um, but what Klopp definitely proved was the tactical flexibility of this side. How do you think both sides go into this game? Let's start with the, the hosts. Well, my, my gut instinct, personally, is that uh, Liverpool go with a bit more of an aggressive approach to them. And again, sure. try and put put pressure on Dortmund because if you look away from, from Matt Hummels, you've got Bender in there, you've got Piszczek, you've got Schmelzer. They they struggled, I felt in particular the fullbacks really struggled when when pressure was put on them to get rid of the ball quickly, to get it to a teammate. And I think, again, you apply that to the, the cauldron that Anfield can be. That in itself, and this is why I think Klopp is a good fit for Liverpool, is that those two factors meld together very well and create yeah. it. So there is almost, granted they don't have comparable histories, I don't believe, there is a, a similarity, I think, between Dortmund and Liverpool in terms of the way that they approach games as fans. Um, oh yeah, no, very good point. I mean, uh, you know, again, you'll never walk alone is probably going to be one of the most rousing things Sun uh, tomorrow night, uh, or Thursday night, depending on when you're listening to this. So, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting. It was yeah. the most rousing thing yesterday, <laughs> depending on when you're listening. Yeah, um, it was a great song. I, I think for, for me personally, I think the true battle with this, as I'm sure Pep Guardiola would say because he said it before, is in midfield. That's where the game will be won and lost. I was a big fan of Emery Chan in the first leg. I thought he offered a lot. Origi was obviously the star because he got the goal. I do like where Chan is going, though. I like the way he's developing. I feel that there's a beauty and a beast side to his game in the sense that he can be very physical. He can carry the ball in a, in a very focused and, and sort of penetrative way. But he can also create things. He can also do beautiful things with the ball. And to have a midfielder who's that flexible and that versatile... That is a, a huge credit to whomever, be it the, the transfer committee, Brendan, whoever sanctioned that deal, because I think he, he could really grow into to being an exceptional midfielder. Uh, yeah, although most people say he was already somewhat of an exceptional midfielder when Liverpool signed him. It was unusual that other people didn't. Um, Another one from Bayern as well, a bit like, bit like Hummels, who was, was let go and has, has gone on to things. And you could, could argue is, is maybe worthy of being in there now I'm, I'm not too sure I'm sure there's Bayern fans with, with more insightful opinions on that it's going to be very interesting uh, yeah Bayern, Bayern's academy obviously uh, or what, what Bayern claimed to be their academy has turned out some fantastic players um, it isn't just one academy in Germany um, Chris let's talk about uh, Karen Benzema when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Going to have to brush on him very quickly. Obviously, he's announced today that he will not be part of the France squad. Uh, or at least France announced it. Some people announced it as if it was Karen Benzema sort of beating him to the punch. Uh, but he's not going to be part of the France squad. Is that really such a massive hit for France, considering the other options that they have up front? There was definitely an air of, it was mutual. We've agreed to part ways. Yeah. Um, we, found, we found a tape he had. You know, it was unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. We accepted. We just, you know, didn't love each other anymore. Um, after she explained it to me in great detail. Yeah. I think, again, it's such a bizarre story, that whole Matthew Valbuena thing. And credit to Valbuena, you could argue in a passive-aggressive way, sticking the knife in further. He handled it with such dignity throughout the whole thing, saying that, again, he would happily play with with Benzema or be willing to play with Benzema if the situation arose that he he didn't hold it against him, even though, again, it, it seemed like quite a sordid affair. Benzema, whether you think he's a cretin, whether you think he's a bit of a scumbag, he is an exceptional player. And and the difficulty he's now a will be... football man is what you're saying, Chris. I wouldn't go that far. Um, <laughs> That's a very good point, actually. No, you have to have more qualities to be a good football man. You're not it, just... Yeah, you can't just play well. You sort of have to have like a bit of a... And there has to be more than just playing well. Well, you could argue as well that perhaps this decision is slightly influenced by the recent tournaments of the French national team where... They've managed to <laughs> yeah. fight themselves. We don't want you threatening other people in the squad with uh, with tapes, so you're not coming. <laughs> um, I'm thinking more along the lines of they managed to find enough reason to fight with each other without any kind of story like this floating mm-hmm. around. So again, it it could be a situation where one heated training session, a comment's made, and then a fight breaks out, and it's it's that idea of why would you want to put that potential destabilizing factor into your squad when it's your home tournament, you're the hosts, there is a pressure on you kind of uh, collecting the trophy. It's like 16 years now since they did it after the World Cup. There's a lot of these factors playing into it. Why do you need that potential disruptive influence? You do also sort of think they're at such a sort of zenith with the different people that they've put out there that, you know, they can almost afford to do this, you know? I mean, if you've got Martial, Giroud, Griezmann, all these guys coming into your squad, you know, Payet just behind that, you can always be like, well, you know, this was great, but... Of course, I, I, th- I think that does play a slight part into it as well. If if this was a team, like let's say Albania or Iceland, that didn't have that depth, you would argue there's a stronger case for him going or a stronger chance of him going at least. Yeah, I think you could, could forge a, a very decent argument to say that actually, as you rightly touched on there, the way that this France team is, is comprised in terms of its strengths and the way it's likely to line up, you may only need one target man. And when you have Olivier Giroud, when you have André Pierre Gignac scoring goals fairly regularly for Tigres in, in Mexico, do you need to, to put someone in there who, again, I don't think will play as a target man. If he was to play, I think he'd play perhaps left or right, where you have someone like Griezmann who's in exceptional form for Atletico. You have someone like Martial that I would argue is a better ball carry than Benzema. I think he glides across the grass better than Benzema does. And you also have Kingsley Coman, who, granted, doesn't have the experience, much like Martial, but is having a very strong season with Bayern Munich. It's, As you rightly say, it's a testament as much to their strength as a nation as more than anything else. Uh, Crystal Palace uh, and Everton uh, limply warm up for Wembley, according to uh, the, the Guardian. Good one, Kristen. Chris, let's move on to uh, PFA uh, Player of the Year awards, uh, awards that everyone cares about. Uh, Vardy, Mares, Kante, all in there. People say they find it so hard because if you take one of those guys out, they wouldn't win the league in the same way as people sort of say, you know, if, he, if Liverpool didn't have Suarez that season, they wouldn't have scored as many goals. Um, sure. Great point. Uh, who would you nominate for Young Player of the Year while we get into it, Chris? I, th- I think you have to, to give it to Deli Ali. And I, I say that, I granted that Harry Kane has scored more goals, etc., etc. I think the way he's handled the transition from what was League One to the Premier League has been so effortless and so impressive that you have to give it to, to Deli Ali for that reason alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then player? I did kind of om and ah about this one. Mm. I, I thought Riyad Mahrez, yep. just because he's been so consistent in both columns. And he'll be gone next season. 
Um, yeah, what a wonderful way to sign off. Poor Leicester fans. I do feel sorry for them in that sense because they haven't even won the league and people are talking about where their players are going. Yeah. Although you, you would also say uh, you know, he may stay because you know, I, I guess that's the problem, isn't it? He may see this as his one sort of you know, uh, ultimate trajectory way out. He may, but then... Yeah, I, I see the point you're making. It's that idea of, I guess, they sit down in the summer and they discuss their their expectations of each other. Because yeah. again, Leicester are now going to have a lot of money. They're going to have much greater pull. And I saw Emil Heskey talking about this and, and how the, the club will... Well, he's a former Leicester player. No, no, I know. I know. Nothing. It's just, it's just funny, you know? He wasn't just approaching people on the street. Well, I mean, um, where, did, where did Emil go post-Leicester? Uh, he went to... Liverpool? Did he go straight to Liverpool? I believe he did, yeah. Oh, there you go. Because he, so, he was a very spindly type forward. He was very quick. I remember watching him at St. James's Park many years ago. He played at centre-back uh, in his young games uh, at, at Leicester school that level. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. He's a yeah. big guy. Yeah, um, tall. But yeah, those changing expectations, again, they may influence Riyad Mahrez because the, there's a benefit in the stability of staying there. It's It's whether you feel the expectations or the objectives are realistic and whether you think that actually, because this is something that not many people have touched on with, with Claudio Ranieri, his second season tends to, to pale a little bit compared to the first, if you look at his management career. And that is going to be a very interesting subplot, I think, for Leicester fans is they'll have the Champions League to deal with now. They'll have significantly more games, which we've seen a lot of teams struggle with. You then also have, and you could argue rightly so, a lot of fans who will think, okay, now we've got money, now we've got pulling power. Let's go out and do something like what West Ham did and, and attract a Dimitri Payet-esque player or someone of that level, maybe three or four different positions, and, and take this club to a, a new level. Yeah, well, there we go. Oh, the problem for Arsenal is you can't really shout Ozil, can you? Um, because they haven't really done anything with what he has done. Um, but, you know, uh, there are teams in worse positions. Uh, let's go to Serie A, Chris. Uh, by the way, we'd love to hear your guys' uh, nominations for who you think should be uh, PFA Player of the Season and obviously Young Player of the Season as well. Coutinho's on that list. Uh, as fantastic as he's been, I did see him compared to Marco Royce uh, statistically. Uh, he's sort of up there with him, allegedly. Um, you know, he, he's not going to win it this year. Um, Milan finally sacked Mihailovic, Chris. When I say finally, I mean, it seems like internally at the club there were a lot of uh, back and forths about this. But actually, the issue was that a lot of the, the fans were saying, we need to keep him. We need some stability. So even if we lose, we need to keep a manager who's bringing through what they believed was a good vision. Yes, and, and, and I can understand that. I, again, I think it's, it's funny. Gazetta ran with uh, the fact that Milan have gone for plan B with yeah. Brocky. I'm not sure if it's plan B. I think James Horncastle wrote. Silvio Berlusconi for ESPN this week, and I would certainly advise anyone to go and read it. They spent 90 million in the summer. The, the difficulty is it, it wasn't a planned 90 million in the sense that we talk about this so much with the elite clubs with how much structure and planning goes into these things. You just don't see that with Milan. Far too much of it seems like shopping when you're hungry in the sense that you come back with a variety of things that will probably go off in a day or two and things that, that maybe you don't actually need when really, you know there needs to be a plan in place. There needs to be a structure to things. And there simply hasn't been at Milan for, for far too long now. Mm. Yeah, it's very disappointing what's going on at Milan because obviously the people who remember what was going on just a few years ago at Milan, the problem would be that most people say that seemed like somewhat of a facade because, you know, there's only so long you can keep investing money in the way that Berlusconi did and from the places that Berlusconi did. Um, but here we are. Uh, Chris, I'm, what I'm interested in is uh, but basically the way that these leagues, leagues are shaping up come the end of the season now. I mean, you know, Premier League, people are talking about Spurs and Leicester. They're not really talking about the, the uh, relegation race because that one seems like one of the least interesting in just a few seasons. Mm. Can I talk to you a little bit about Newcastle? I was trying to get there in sort of a roundabout way, but I... Uh, <laughs> It just Everybody's talking of, about the top. Now let's talk about the bottom. Yeah, it's disappointing, isn't it? Because we've, we've not really had you on the podcast to sort of give a, a, what, your, what your opinion was. When Rafa first came in, we spoke a little bit about him on the podcast. Mm. And both you and I were very excited to see him because he is another calibre of manager. He's got a few right bullets, though. 
Yeah, and, and it's almost a seamless transition from Milan to, to Newcastle in the sense that they both lack structure and they both lack a plan. And, and a I good think, kit this season. That's, that's well, not true. They've both got a good kit this season. So. I think Jamal Lascelles really hit the nail on the head rather inten- unintentionally, I imagine, when he said that, you know, Steve McLaren is a great coach. Rafa Benitez is a great manager. It's not their problem. It's us. We lack leaders. We lack character. And it was a very rare moment of honesty that wasn't being portrayed on Twitter and, and it wasn't a fancy graphic telling everyone to, to get excited for the game. It was someone actually standing up and, and saying, look, we are the problem at this particular moment. We're not putting enough in there as a group. And I think that really resonated with, with supporters because, again, that team is short on character. It is short on leaders. And there's far too many willing to throw the towel in when a goal goes in. And the the frightening thing is they were in almost an identical position to this when they went down the last time. The difference was the players were slightly older. They were on slightly more money. But for the most part, they were mercenaries there. They, they weren't there for any eagerness to try and further their careers or improve. They were enticed by the, the large sums that Freddie Shepard, for the most part, had offered them. So the the situations that brought these people to the football club may be slightly different. I don't think the motivations are massively. And unsurprisingly, it's put them in a position whereby a team or a club, I should say, with no structure, with no plan, with no vision past, say, 12 months, is now in a an absolutely diabolical situation where, again, they're going to have to go into the championship because I personally don't believe they'll, they'll be saved at this point. They're going to have to strip away assets again. They're going to have to start again. And it's all needless. I think that's what frustrates fans the most, is that if you draw the, the comparison to Sunderland, you can say that Ellis Short has tried everything he can think of and put mm. so much money and potential into that football club, but it's been handed to the wrong decision makers, so the wrong managers, the wrong sporting directors, etc. Mm. Newcastle have never really tried that. And this is one of the things that I find is, is incredibly misleading when people say, oh, they spent 80 million this year. You know, How are they going down? Cast that alongside the previous few years when they finished fifth and, and spent relatively nothing. I think they only brought in Vernon Nita and Lloyd Remy on loan. Cast it alongside those summers and it doesn't look nearly as significant. Realise how much money they're getting just from the TV deal. And then also add in the fact that, and I was talking to Andy Brass about this today, it's well-timed, the idea that Graham Carr went on this Moby Dick chase for Florian Tovan, a player that everything in, in kind of logic said would fail, had not excelled at Marseille, was not the player with so much potential that Carr had seen at Bastia. And yet he still decided to not only put 13 million on the table, but also give them Remy Cabela, who they paid about eight or nine million for. To, to put so much like that and to chase those kind of white whales, again, it's just indicative of a, a club that is, is deciding things by committee in all the wrong ways. Yeah. And obviously there's a club that, that, that pretty much takes... It doesn't take the entirety of the northeast out, does it, Chris? Because actually uh, Middlesbrough on the way up but I know that's going to slightly sting. I, again, I, I really do commend Steve Gibson for, for bringing in the likes of Stuart Downing and, and giving that club every opportunity to succeed. Obviously, you and I met Ben Gibson last year for the under-21s announcement, and you couldn't meet someone who was prouder to represent his local football club. You then look at that club away from the field and the solidarity they showed to the steelworkers on Teesside. That is a football club to me. Yeah. That is a club that is not just rooted in its community. And bear in mind, doesn't get huge attendances. The, the attendances aren't swelled at, at Middlesbrough all the time. And yet still Steve Gibson stands up and, and says, you know, we support the community period, whether you come into the stadium or not. That for me is the very definition of a football club. And unfortunately, for very different reasons, I've seen Sunderland and Newcastle move away from that with the Adam Johnson situation that was horrendous at at Sunderland with Mike Ashley removing the sporting integrity and again, not engaging with the fans in a positive way, kind of having these very bizarre fan forums where the, you know, the minutes are posted online, but you can't actually ask a question that's, that's penetrative or, or important because it just gets shut down very easily. That to me is, is the, the prototype for a football club. And when you consider that Sunderland and Newcastle with all due respect to Middlesbrough have greater, stadium's potential, the fact that they're chronically mismanaged while a neighbour does so well just makes it, I think, that more depressing if you're a fan. That is sort of the problem, isn't it, at that point, is that it is 
you know, there's a whole lot of perception in there of those clubs. Uh, I, I do also find it sort of problematic. There are, I mean, there are, I'm even hearing certain London journalists and certain YouTubers sort of saying it's not a great loss um, because it's sort of like, you know, these clubs are chronically mismanaged, etc., etc. You sort of take out a lot of history of both those clubs and that whole area when you sort of say, well, why did the owners of these clubs originally get in and then mm. get to the point where they, they were able to chronically mismanage? Um, and it does seem a lot like some of the top sides and, you know, particularly when we look at sort of the way that power is in the Premier League and within Europe, can at times sort of distract from the fact that, you know, there was a time before the Premier League and there was also a time sort of before the Conservative Party decided to cut off the rest of Britain? I, th- I think what I would say is... So, so what I'm really getting at is, is, is uh, fuck Margaret Thatcher and, uh, and also uh, David Cameron. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yes. I, I think... What I would say is that the idea that, again, clubs the size of Sunderland and Newcastle because of the stadiums, they certainly don't have a divine right to be in this league. I think what I would say is that to see such institutions mismanaged, I mean, this this is not a new thing in that sense. There's a story that floats around up here of when Peter Beardsley was at Newcastle in the 80s and him being in a, a working men's club. And one of the Newcastle fans actually standing up here and saying to him, look, Peter, you'd be better off away from here. It's a mess. That mentality, and, and Jonathan Wilson, I'm sure, can talk to this much better because, again, he, he's lived through a lot more of it than I have. <laughs> yeah. so, that's a very side, uh, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a great nice way to say it. I think he can, can almost take you through the transition from pre-Premier League to the current yeah, situation sure, yeah, yeah. better than, than I can because I grew up with the Premier League. I didn't know... Division One or, or, or that kind of situation again as I was just becoming aware of football mm. Newcastle had already been promoted so yeah. it's, it's difficult to gauge that and, and again I, I remember being shocked the first time Newcastle went down because it's an idea of being too good to go down too big to go down and now there's an apathy towards it. there's an acceptance that it's going to happen again that in itself is the erosion of not so much expectation but ambition and, and this is one of the things and we've talked about this before the idea that Newcastle fans demand so much. I don't think they do. They just want the best. Yeah, and it, and I, it, I do it, think it, that's it, a misperception, it. isn't it? I, I mean, I've never really felt that they want, you know, too much. And it, it, it really isn't too much to ask uh, for the basics and to be proud of those as well. I, I think in any other walk of life, you wouldn't criticise that ambition. To, to want yeah. to be a team in the top 10, to want to essentially repeat what you did in the 90s and challenge for league titles. I think to me that is that is a, a group of fans like most who are just very proud. And and the difficulty, in, and this is something I think not a lot of people get, is the football clubs in Sunderland and Newcastle really do sit at the heart of their cities. Mm. That it, it's look, it's it's not the situation of they come out the mines, they go to the matches. I think personally, Kevin Keegan put it best. He said that for for these fans, the football is is much like the theatre in the south. It provides so many different contrasting emotions that that's what keeps you coming back. Because look at the last few seasons these two clubs have had. It's been dire football. It's been dire results. Staying up by the very scraps of their teeth. And yet, for the most part, the majority still come back the next season in hope that it changes. Yeah. And if you did that in any other walk of life, your profession perhaps, you'd be considered mad. You know, Everyone would tell you, why are you still going to that job if you hate it that much and have other outlets and other opportunities. Yeah. So it's it's that idea of the blind loyalty of Newcastle and Sunderland fans and that strength equally being their biggest weakness. More more in relation to Newcastle because, again, it does seem at times that that fan base will take anything that's thrown at them, whereas I think at Sunderland there's a much better relationship between Ellis Short and the fan base and, and that often comes across. Well, you could also go along the lines of saying, I mean, you know, I'm not sure I agree with any of this, but you could say, uh, first of all, the apathy towards going down to the championship may also show some of the great qualities of the championship. It wasn't such a terrible season that uh, Newcastle were down there, was it, Chris? Um, uh, you know, the the great teams that they played, uh, you know, the fact there is increased coverage, even though it's not great coverage of the championship at this point. Um, and you could also say that, it, you know, it, it is about perspective. It's not only just about winning things. There is a greater perspective to these fans. Um, and there's, there's something that's quite respectable about that, but there's also something that 
if you come from a certain hierarchy or a certain level of that hierarchy, people tend to look down upon that. And they especially tend to look down upon certain areas of England and certain uh, sections of the population and say, oh, well, those guys are, you know, thick or tough enough not to understand that, the other nuances. But it's sort of, you almost have to experience that uh, in order to appreciate those sides in a sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think... I don't understand this this backbiting between fans personally. Yeah, I don't. I I very rarely find it easy when there's a la- almost a lack of brotherhood between fans. I mean, you know, we we talk a lot with full time devils on TFR, and when you can tell when a fan's back goes up, and they instantly think you're having a go at them, because it's sort of you know it seems very clear. You know, they sort of go, well, you know, your guys say this or your guys say this, and it, obviously that can be the case sometimes. Sometimes you can be making fun of someone. But more often than not, right now, I almost feel like a sort of a, I don't know, brotherhood or togetherness with other fans who are sort of going through very similar problems. Yes, I think, again, it's not nice. This is the other thing to consider is that when Aston Villa go down, which will likely be confirmed soon, yeah, there'll be people who lose their jobs. When Newcastle went down, there was people who lost their jobs yeah. in a variety of different sectors of that football club. In In many ways, and I think this perhaps explains to a degree why we have a lack of sympathy for footballers. The footballers are the least affected because their wage may drop, admittedly, but for most of them who are relatively talented and haven't been able to show it, they'll earn a move to a new club, they'll likely pick up a signing fee, all this kind of thing. It's the people that born, raised, die there. Those are the ones that are most affected. It's the media teams, the the tea ladies, the ground staff, all these kind of people that actually feel the aftershock of, of relegation. And that's the problem as well because budgets tend to be cut across the board. So youth budgets, coaching, but all these kind of things are impacted by relegation. And to me, that's the greater disappointment of a relegation rather than we'll have to give up the star number 10 or you know this very talented defender who is a prospect will have to leave because we can't keep him and we need to make the money from him. Well, let us know, uh, you know, maybe you've experienced a club going down or maybe, uh, you know, you are one of those fans who looks down on some of the other uh, clubs or maybe you just sort of don't feel an affinity to any of these sides who are going down. That is part of the problem is that, uh, you know, I don't know, they're, they're, Villa have almost become a little bit faceless in that sense. You know, there isn't much on or off the pitch um, to sort of characterise them, if you like, Chris, because it's not very well portrayed. No, and then you have the stories like the club badge removing prepared, which, again, certainly we can laugh at it. You could argue it's it's symptomatic of of their problems because they they don't seem able to focus on the important ones. Yeah, so it, it almost it, there's a problem with it. it almost, there's almost a mentality of because they are not you, uh, you know, and it, you know it's like the age old sort of football problem, isn't it? You almost don't sympathise with that, but you know you, you'd hate to be going through it yourself in that sense. Exactly, but I think the the other thing you can say with Villa is that post Martin O'Neill, Randy Lerner essentially decided to chronically reduce budgets in terms of how much they would spend. The days of buying someone like Ashley Young, a promising young Englishman, Curtis Davis for ten million pounds, those days are very much gone at Villa. And much like Newcastle, I think the two do share similarities. The summer felt very much like frantically trying to buy players, knowing that the mistakes of the past few seasons were now very much creeping up to the shore. And you could really see them, the fact that they didn't have quality in defence, the fact that, again, they had a player in Jolien Lescott who was arguably too old to lead a defence that young, that, that needed a bit more marshalling, that, again, there wasn't much plan to the players they were buying. They, they had Gay, who was sort of like Fabian Delph, like, and they sold their spine, more importantly than anything. They, they essentially got rid of the spine of the team mm. and expected to just recover instantly. That's a huge thing to ask of of any player coming into a new league to essentially not only fill the role of a player that was so important, but match their level of performance in the first season. Chris, what podcast do you listen to? Do you listen to any football podcast? That's a good question. Apart from Graham Hunter, of course. Um... I'm so tempted to do the impression. It really, it really is. I, I was saying to, I was hanging out with Marcus Feller uh, today. I was really saying to him today, it probably is one of my favourite impressions that you do. Um, it's it sort of, I know it's hard to sort of just bust out. Um, but, you know, everyone, obviously everyone listens to the Ramble, everyone listens to Football Weekly. Yeah, the, the Ramble's a good one. I think the Ramble I, I like because 
it feels like a conversation. Doesn't feel like a dictation or a lecture. You you, will, you absorb things a lot easier. Mm, that way, you, I, I think when you're relaxed like that, you absorb things in a much more natural way. Whereas, uh, how would you say Graham Hunter's style is, Chris? Again, you, you know, for, for for all the the kind of jokes that we might make, it, I actually it's enjoy his relaxed. in the sense that yeah, they're they're a little bit like behind the actor's studio for football. Yes, that's um, a very good point. That's a very way, very nice way of putting it. Yeah. The, the Peter Beardsley one I found was, was very good because I think you learned a lot with him. Equally, you look at someone like Guy's Mendieta, Michael Carrick was another one, I think. You come away learning a lot because I think they're put in a situation where they feel comfortable enough to express themselves and they're also expressing themselves about football rather than personality yeah. for the most part, which is a much smaller bubble to discuss in and it's much harder to make mistakes um, in that. And also, it's not broadcast live, so you have little benefits like that. He so yeah, he does sort of get the the tone right in that sense. He sort of understands, uh, you know, how best to get something out of a footballer. Which you know, arguably there are a lot of people out there that don't. Mm. But I think, to be honest, most of my podcasts references, uh, I did listen to the Mutant Gene podcast, which is Alexi Lawless's recently instigated one. What, then what's, what is what's that? It's it's with Fox Soccer, so it's essentially Alexi. It's one guest per week and a little bit of news roundup. This week it was Bruce Arena, who I have had the pleasure of talking to once. I find him a really fun and because the thing with Bruce is there's no pretension at all. Yes, um, I interviewed him for the MLS Cup '96, and a few of the questions I asked him, he just flat out said, "Look, that was a long time ago. I really don't remember." Um, instead of trying to give me some kind of answer that he thought I wanted to. The Magic Sponge, I know, I think it's stopped quite recently, but the Magic Sponge with Jimmy Bullard is another one of those kind of JB, yeah. good, more relaxed podcasts. Other than that, I tend to listen to, to things like Serial and, and WTF with Mark Maron. Uh, yeah. Okay, right. That's things good. like that. Are, I, are yeah. you... What about yourself? I mean, that's the thing. I know you're quite heavy into the podcast, so heavy, I thought you might have better football suggestions. Heavy podcast consumer. It's really just a strong rotation of ramble. Uh, World football phoning is, I tend to find, probably one of the best. Mm. Just for sort of, you know, what I love is I love a podcast that's recorded late at night because it's sort of um, you can tell that people are almost in a late night mood. You know, people is doing a podcast at night is pretty much like. Uh, smoking weed and then doing the podcast because people are just sort of in that mood to freestyle. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And, you no, know, they, you know they, they used to have people like Andy Brassel on. Luke Moore was in there for a while. Uh, it's Tim Vickery that is also very regularly on there. Um, I think Vickery's exceptional. If, if, if anyone listening isn't aware of, of Tim Vickery or, and his work, I would definitely give him a listen because, again, much like someone you touched on there, Brassel, they have a beautiful way of interweaving facts with outside context correct so yes. you really understand the situation in a, in a beautiful way and, and i have to confess both both men are, are very much kind of uh inspirations or whatever the correct word for that is in terms of the way that i discuss football because i think they do it in such a, a brilliant way very sort of unassuming and that's what i like about them um mm. something i don't know if i'm capable of um well we'll see um yeah, very good. Uh, let us know which podcast you're listening to. Obviously, there's also Second Substitutes, uh, which was another, which is a fan favourite of the front three. Um, there's obviously also people like Nipun Chopra out there who are doing the ULF podcast, which if you're a United, a Liverpool fan, is definitely a must listen because it's almost like laying in bed with the enemy and hearing them critique your club. Um, there's Will Soccer. Say something else. And uh, <laughs> hearing them. Uh, so uh, let us know what your favourite podcasts are. We'd love to know uh, as it's coming down to the end of the season. Um, there's obviously a lot to come uh, from us for the rest of the season. But uh, Chris has been fantastic. If people like you, uh, where can they find you? Well, even if they don't, they can give it a try anyway. Yeah. Um, power through it, like yeah. I did with that tofu, which I was reminded of today. Chris and I lived together for a little while. Uh, what was it, like six, seven weeks? It was seven weeks, right. and it was abruptly ended. Um, and, <laughs> tell um, the story. I can't tell the story, um, and for legal reasons. And then... Um, Kristen, Kristen left, but during that time, uh, we introduced Kristen to tofu. Um, first of all, I can't believe you had not tofu before, but it was just watching. <laughs> now we're just remembering your face when you had that. Uh, we went to like a really sort of trendy Soho, which is in the heart of London, trendy area uh, restaurant, and I was like, oh, "I love this stuff. You should have it." And I assumed 
that that would be that would be uh, music to your earbuds, your taste buds. But it really wasn't, was it? No, I mean, look, this is something I would love to open up to the listeners. I appreciate yeah. that normally the chat is, is football related. Is tofu good or bad? Let us know. Not, not even right. that, that kind of definitive. If you've had tofu, what were your first impressions of mm. it, honestly? Because I, at the time, said it was essentially like soggy bread. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it was difficult to cut. And obviously, they don't give you a knife and fork until they realise you're floundering like an idiot. Yeah. To, to I mean, further embarrass you by that point. Um, yeah, and you know we were all sat in a line like it was school dinners, and I'm sat next to some chap that's clearly been eating this stuff six times a week for the most of his life, and he's he's flipping up. And very kind you know. of you say that about me, but I mean I'd only had it a few times, Chris. <laughs> um, I'd, uh, yeah, good point. Very good point. Yeah, you make a you make for easy listening. Uh, not the most welcoming. Not that's yeah, what I would say. Put it this way: I don't think it's always um, upon a restaurant to patronise you to the point where. <laughs> Where you then feel utterly welcome eating what they have, um, but you. D- I will say this: the, the the poor waitresses. She gave me the knife and fork. Did not seem impressed when I said you probably should have had that out from the start, shouldn't you? Yeah, um, because I do believe that it is more on you than it is on them, Chris. But that's fair enough. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, and of course, Chris, you're going to New York very soon. I am. I actually when leave. Do you go? it's five hours uh funnily enough not not much later than that i uh, will leave here at six o'clock on thursday morning flight i believe to dublin is half eight and then land in new york at about half six wait what wait british time wait not tomorrow yeah tomorrow you're leaving tomorrow you're doing the podcast tonight yes i did i didn't know that i thought well, it was I'm, later I, I, I wouldn't worry i'm staying up the entire night anyway okay, I, I guarantee I'll be uh, I'll be fast asleep I, well, I, and I miss do, the flight I do also forget um, I do also forget obviously that Newcastle is a few years behind so uh, yeah that's a very good point you've still got lots of time um, I've got an exceptional price on the ticket for that very reason yeah a very good point uh, how long are you going for Chris? Uh, 14 days I think come back on the 29th of April you're going to go and see a, a tapia Colbert am I right? I am I'm going to see Colbert I am also present for Red Bulls uh, Orlando so I'll be in the hopefully touch would be in the presence of Kakar let, let Chris um, know that you let, let us know that you're there Chris are you going as a press guy or are you going as a fan I believe I'm going as press in the oh. hope of meeting Kakar okay um, great but if any of the listeners are out in New York and, and fancy you know meeting up and whatever just drop a line I'm, all, I'm always willing to do that at Kay Hennish um, yes very good point uh, probably everyone's favourite person on uh, the front three Chris Hennish there uh good chris thank you very much for coming on uh, also if people can sort of recommend things for you going to new york that'd be great you know definitely 100 um, you know, percent. where would you go what would you do who would you meet um you know that sort of thing sounds like you've already had your trip pretty much planned but i will leave it in the capable hands of the people listening to the podcast um we'll see you guys again on saturday hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. For the Q&A. But until then, have a good one.